0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant Armstrong. I am one of the pastors here on staff at the church, and I figure I should just get this out of the way to start. If you get bored during the middle of my sermon and you start staring at my forehead and see this tan line, I feel like the lights are probably highlighting that. Um, That is because I just got back from vacation with my family out in Wyoming. I think we have a picture of that. Um, I like to wear my hat backwards, and this is the gift I got. So uh, that right there, that's the Painted Canyon, Um, someone painted that, I can't remember his name because I wasn't paying close enough attention, but painted that, sent a picture of it to the president at the time, and that is what birthed Yellowstone. So kind of cool, but there's my family there in all the chaos and my uh, tan lines. Um, If you are a guest with us here, I would love to meet you, we would love to meet you. We have a welcome table out in the lobby there. Uh, We believe that relationships are a primary means that God uses to grow us, and so we try to infuse relationship into everything we do here at the church, and oftentimes that simply starts by uh, getting a name, grabbing coffee, getting to know one another. We also have a book for you that our senior pastor, Kelly Brady, who is preaching over at our other campus, Poplar Creek, this morning, wrote. Uh, It's called Following Jesus, and this just helps give you a little bit deeper understanding of who we are as a church, why we do what we do. We'd love for you to have that if you're interested in learning more. um, but like I said, we would love to just get to know you. There's nothing we expect of you. Um, we simply want to meet you and hear a little bit of your story. Finally, our podcast resumes this week. So if you have questions about the sermon this morning or faith in general, you can text that number on the screen. The Next Level Podcast, we, uh, we'll do a little bit deeper dive and do our best to answer those questions. And you can find that Next Level Podcast on any platform by simply searching Glen Ellum Bible Church, The Next Level Podcast. Um, So yeah, if you're interested, uh, send in those questions, and uh, hopefully it doesn't stump us, but we'll do our best. All right, well, depending on how familiar you are with classic English literature, you may or may not recall a novel that was originally a poem written by Mary Shelley in 1818, titled The Modern Prometheus, which is better known as Frankenstein. Now, contrary to popular cartoons that confuse these character names, Victor Frankenstein was actually a nobleman and a scientist with a passion for alchemy. And after the tragic death of his mother, Frankenstein buries himself in his work, driven by his grief. He combines alchemy with modern science in the hopes of creating the elixir of life. And after two years of experimentation, Frankenstein succeeds He's discovered how to animate organic matter, how to give life to this organic material, create a living creature. His initial creation goes on to live a tormented existence, eventually killing Frankenstein's bride on their wedding night. Well, incensed, Victor commits himself to tracking down the monster, killing him in order to end the reign of terror. He chases the monster to the North Pole, only to be stranded himself, and in a near-death state, Victor is eventually rescued by Captain Robert Walton. Walton is leading an expedition of men seeking adventure and fame, and in his final days, Victor reveals his own history. He talks about the crimes of the heinous, heinous monster, his regrets, and even warns Walton about the dangers of chasing after life's ambitions. Well, there are lots of threads that we can pull on from this story, but the one that stands out to me this morning is the juxtaposition between Victor Frankenstein, who devoted a substantial portion of his life, his energy, his resources to discovering that which created life, and the other characters, oftentimes including the readers, who seem to forego any real discussion or interest around the recipe the life-giving elixir. You see, Frankenstein initially thought it to be of supreme importance, and others almost ignore its existence. Victor figured out how to create a living being, but the discovery is clouded by all the other details, the demanding events, the sheer confusion, and the breadth of endured tragedy all around. So the concoction rarely becomes part of the conversation. I find my own life can reflect the same tendency, overlooking some of those primary elements. As the pace of my life picks up, as we give attention to the demands on our time, as we're consumed with chasing ambitions or leaving a legacy, I think many of us can drift into this state of neglecting the very thing intended to animate the Christian life. Well, last night, like I mentioned, I got back from my trip out west. We spent some time in Teton National Park, Yellowstone, we took a few days to explore and look at all kinds of wildlife, which is one of my favorite things, and sometimes I got to use binoculars. And if you're familiar with binoculars, you've ever used them, when you first pick them up, everything tends to be kind of fuzzy. And right in the middle there, there's that thumb wheel that you turn to bring the image into focus. And this morning, I want us to spend some time looking at Paul's instructions to Timothy, bringing back into focus what Paul says is to be primary in the life of the church. Now, throughout the book of 1 Timothy, we learn that Paul was compelled to write this specific letter because of the influence of certain leaders who had been teaching in the church. And these leaders opposed Paul's mission of spreading the gospel outside of the Jewish inner circles, outside of the Jewish people. The teaching of these leaders encouraged the congregation to become somewhat preoccupied with myths and trying to establish their bona fides by tracing their own genealogies back to heroes and prominent figures in ancient Jewish tribes. Ultimately, that focus on those teachings, their preoccupation, led them to have attitudes of elitism or indifference to outsiders, The congregation got so caught up in these speculative conversations that they lost focus on the central mission of the church. Because this church had lost its focus, lost focus on what was most important, Paul is attempting to course correct them, to bring them back on track. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7, we'll have it on the screen can turn to your copy of the scriptures or even pull it up on your phone. This is what Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy. I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people and be made for the kings and all those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the of the truth. For there's one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling you the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So as we look at this passage, just like looking through binoculars, there are a variety of themes or ideas that come into view. But Paul's decision to use this term, urge, helps us know the importance of what he's trying to communicate. Now, this terminology is more than just a suggestion. It's a gentle command, but a command that Paul expects his original audience and certainly can be expected of us today, that anything that follows that term should be given some serious attention and consideration. We should focus on what follows this idea. So in these first seven verses of chapter two, Paul uses the word all six times. First of all, all people, all those in authority, all godliness, all people to be saved, ransom for all people. Literarily, there are these undertones, these allusions to the idea of totality or universality. And this is especially related to salvation and the gospel. Now, this is the most explicit place. It's not the only one, but the most explicit one that Paul articulates the scope of the inclusivity of the gospel. Paul tells us that it is God who longs for every person to experience salvation, deliverance from sin, adoption into his family for all eternity. A line from our membership book, a declaration of who we are as a church, says this, the gospel is far more inclusive than any other faith in the world, accepting everyone who believes, regardless of their race, their gender, their sexuality, their lifestyle, or their moral purity. The inclusivity of the gospel is a unique element of the gospel's message. Now, I'm aware that when we hear the word of universality or all or inclusive, some of us can start to feel a little uneasy. We start to feel defensive or concerned. Before long, the way we talk about or oppose the universal intent of the gospel can lead to attitudes or postures that are separatist, that are elitist, just like the church that Paul's addressing. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, he responded to this tendency he noticed like this. He says, I do abhor from my heart that continual whining of some men about their own little church as the remnant, the few that are to be saved. They're always dwelling upon straight gates and narrow ways and upon what they conceive to be a truth that but few shall enter heaven. I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence. And I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Moreover, it's said that there is to be a multitude that no man can number in heaven. I've never read that there's to be a multitude that no man can number in hell. Christ will have his way. And we can see plainly here that it's God's desire for all of humanity to be saved. So it's not only safe, it's actually admirable to desire that all of humanity would be saved because that is the heart of our Father in heaven. But when we hear these things, we start to wonder, how does that reconcile with Paul's words in verses 5 and 6? What are we to do with this statement? For there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. You see, the gospel is also exclusive. All promises of salvation, outside of faith in Jesus, simply fail. The burden of salvation doesn't rest on any one of us or on anything else beyond Jesus. Salvation, a deliverance from the prison of sin, is a gift given to those who trust in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All are welcomed Everybody is desired. But Jesus teaches us that he's the only path to the Father. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the early church, who is living in the wake of Jesus' life and his teachings, taught much the same. Acts 4 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So somewhat paradoxically, the gospel is both exclusive and inclusive. Jesus is the singular means by which any of us can be saved. And it's through him that the path is paved for all of us to be saved. And thank goodness, right? I don't have to earn it. I don't have to achieve it. There's no bar for me to clear. There's no 10-step journey for me to follow nothing I need to buy, nothing I need to sell. The work is done. Jesus paid the ransom to rescue all of humanity who are captive to sin and death. And if that's something you long for in your life, something you desire, it's available for you because all scripture affirms that that is true. Now, this isn't the primary point what I'm about to share of the morning, so consider it a little bonus teaching. Uh, Kelly opened our series in 1 Timothy by describing the need for both a posture and position of love for people. And I think if our hearts don't break, if our hearts don't truly mourn for those who don't know the same freedom that many of us have, freedom from the bondage of sin, then I'm afraid we may have adopted the posture of the servant who has forgiven an enormous debt but fails to understand the gift he's been given and goes out to condemn others who owe much smaller sums of money. So let's be cautious of that posture. Our hearts, they should always be tender towards those who don't yet know Christ. Now Paul reminds us that the mission of the church is to spread the gospel to all people. And this has been true from the very beginning, the storyline of scripture, we see God early on building a framework that's intended to include everybody. Genesis 12, there's the, what's labeled the Abrahamic covenant. Israel, God's chosen people, it's stated, are blessed in order to be a blessing. Their lives, who they are, what they possess, how they behave should be of tangible benefit to non-Israelites. And this is the trajectory that God establishes in his plans for humanity moving forward. In the prophet's writings, Jeremiah 29, we see the same idea affirmed. The prophet relays instructions to the people who are held captive. He says, pray for the city of your captors that they would be blessed. This is foundational for multiple aspects of the Christian faith, But its pertinence to our discussion this morning is this, benefiting the people around us is not simply a byproduct of us living moral lives, of us ordering society in an ethical manner or by being kind in the grocery store or not cheating in business. Those are certainly necessary parts to the character of the Christian life. They're outworkings of the biblical commands that we must follow. But what I think is most important The whole point of the passage is that God's people are to actively pray, to lift up, to intercede on behalf of those not yet redeemed for their salvation. The opening of chapter 2 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made to God for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? See, the church has been given multiple directives, even in this book. But Paul decides to put primacy on this instruction. He says, first of all, pray for the salvation of the lost. Prayer is for the salvation of the lost is of first importance. Prayer for the salvation of the lost... Is in fact the heartbeat of a follower of Christ and a church that is on mission. And that means more than praying for people's health and safety and their well-being. Those are good and appropriate. But this goes beyond that. It goes beyond just prayer for friends and family co-workers. Our takeaway this morning, the big idea is that prayer for the salvation of the lost, all of the lost, is the heartbeat a follower of Christ and a church that is truly on mission. A Christian, a group of Christians gathered as the church that don't animate their lives around prayer for salvation have either misunderstood or drifted off mission. And that drift, that misunderstanding is so dangerous because it misrepresents God's intent for the world. The church We should be a beautiful example of what God desires, and I'm confident that is a church that sees people coming to new faith in Christ. Now, there's this curious tag at the end of this command or this urge that Paul gives. He includes a specific reference of praying for the salvation of political leaders and those in authority. And there's a lot to be said for Christian engagement in politics and government. But I hope our energy around politics doesn't supersede, doesn't go beyond the depth of our conviction and our prayers for the salvation of those that lead us. I love Jeremiah 29.7 because it's a beautiful picture of why we care about the cities we live in, the places where we dwell. Because when political leaders are saved, that leads to this kind of ideal of a peaceful and quiet existence. It's good for everybody when our leaders have a true encounter with Jesus, the Savior. The danger, of course, is that we start to pursue simply the quiet and peaceful existence, that that becomes the primary, and we draw back from the directive we are given to pray for our leader's salvation. You see, if you really push on this, it starts to beg the question why a person might not pray for their political leader. If we believe that God can do all, And we believe in the power of prayer and we believe that political leaders coming to faith leads to peaceful living why aren't we praying for their salvation well i recently got to spend some time with our elder board and inevitably when we're reflecting on the status of glen ellen bible church our vision the topic comes up where do we need to grow what might our deficiencies be And I've had the same answer over the last handful of years, and I know I shared with leadership. I long to see new people come to faith in Jesus. I long for us to be a church that not only disciples and loves families and students well, not only sends out missionaries, cares for the needy in our community. Those are beautiful parts of our community. I love those things, but I want to be a church that sees people experience birth new life in Jesus. I want to have baptism services that are so full there's no time left for a sermon. That's the type of church I think we can be. But I don't think we'll begin to see those things happen without a focus on prayer that's specifically aimed at all people coming to a saving faith in Jesus. I don't think it happens if it's just one of a few boxes that we check. I don't think it happens if we do it a couple times a year See, if prayer stays on the periphery, I don't think we'll have the privilege of participating in story after story after story of life transformation due to the gospel. And I don't say any of this to shame you or us. Shame is a pretty crummy motivator anyways. But I am hoping to communicate to you, maybe to remind you to bring back into focus what one of the primary calls of the Christian life is to be about, to help us see clearly our current engagement with that directive. Prayer for the salvation of the lost is the heartbeat of a follower of Christ and a church that's truly on mission. Now, as a shepherd here, I want to be sure that we are a group of people following the examples set by Jesus and by Paul, living as a church on mission and praying for the reception of the gospel by all people. That's the question I think we should ask ourselves this week. Do we want to be a church on mission? Do I want to live in such a way that is animated by prayer for the salvation of the lost? And if our answer to that question is yes, then we have to think, how should I respond? What should I do? Well, when I was younger, middle school age, I had this idea that someday I might want to be a preacher. Maybe God was calling me to give my life to the local church. And so I remember sitting with my pastor at the time, and he was trying to share with me how he prepares for a sermon. And quite frankly, it all went over my head. I don't remember much of the conversation, except a question that actually filled me with a good bit of fear. I asked, what do you do when you're preaching a passage that you haven't actually been living? How do you stand up on a Sunday morning, Encourage people to follow God's word when you haven't been following those exact same words. I don't know what he said to me. I was too intimidated by the thought to pay attention, but I do have an answer today. You see, this was a hard sermon for me to prep. It's a harder sermon for me to preach because I feel a deep sense of conviction. I'm certainly not opposed to people coming to faith, finding Jesus, being saved. It's apparently what I've given my life to, but I, Admit that I've neglected this specific teaching. I've just trusted the people in our Wednesday evening and Sunday morning prayer meetings to handle the work of prayer. I let other people be this faint pulse of what's intended to be the heartbeat of our mission. I lost focus on what God intends to drive me and the church. It's easy to get caught up in all the running around of life work, raising kids, spending time with friends, being responsible, and none of that's bad. All good gifts are from God, but prayer for the salvation of the lost has to be the heartbeat of my Christian life. So it's a preacher, when you say something that convicts you because you don't abide by those same instructions, I think you stand up in front of the church, you confess and change direction. So church, I humbly stand here confessing that I lost focus on this prayer, It's not been primary in my life, and that it's not the kind of pastor that I want to be. So I hope you'll join me in making a commitment to renew, maybe revive in your own life, that faint heartbeat by praying for the lost to be found, for the trapped to be freed, for the broken to be healed, that all would know the love of their Savior Jesus. Now, it might seem strange to some of us, that God's ordained our prayers to be that means by which he works. There's an older Christian Chinese writer. His name's Watchman Nee, and he said something to the effect that prayer is like the track to the train of God's will. Our prayers create the pathway for God's desires to extend out into the world. Now, God certainly doesn't need us, but in his sovereignty, he has ordained our participation in this. And as we pray for what we know God desires, that act also brings our heart in line with God's heart. We're shaped and we're formed by our prayers. And in this case, making prayer for the salvation of the lost the heartbeat of our lives and of our church will maintain the focus on what's intended to be primary. Our position and our posture begin to be formed in the position and the posture that God intended for us. You see, I have a growing conviction that we will see God move in those ways at Glen Island Bible Church. I think we'll become a church that builds its prayer life around salvation for the lost. I think that would we'll be a church that resists separatism, that resists elitism because of the content of our prayers. I think we'll become a church that doesn't get so caught up in God's good gifts that we lose focus on what's intended to be primary, intended to animate our Christian life, and a church that's on mission. I have a confidence that we're a group of people who long to join God in rescuing our world from the clutches of sin. So let's not delay that any further. Now, as is frequently the case, great stories throughout human history often trace a similar arc or theme, and I think that's true in the case of Frankenstein and his monster. Originally... The monster was created for good reasons, built with good intentions, but instead of the monster changing the world for the better, his life sowed destruction and despair and chaos. And I wonder if that's kind of like the human story. In fact, the monster in a moment of desperation, struggling with his own circumstances, compares himself to the biblical first man, Adam. And just like the monster, we've been given this incredible gift of life. We can get so caught up in all kinds of other things. On our best days, maybe it's good stuff. And on our worst days, sinful, destructive things. What was intended for good goes off track, loses focus, can le- even lead to destruction. But here's where it, what's different. Here's where our story diverges from the monsters. You see, unlike the monster, we have a path of rescue and redemption. Unlike the monster, our creator didn't chase us down to kill us in order to end the destruction. Instead, our creator chased us down to share the depths of his love for us. Instead of us dying, our creator died to offer us new life. And if you've ever had even a faint desire to receive that new life, this, this morning is a perfect time to express that to God. When we pray in a minute, you can do just that by asking God for new life, for forgiveness of your sins, for deliverance, the prison of sin. Because God's desire is for you to be part of his family, and that's our desire too. We'll close the service with a couple songs, and I'll be down front, a couple other people will. And here's my request, in your head or out loud, I'd like for you to think of a specific person or maybe a specific group of people who don't yet know Jesus, that you would pray for them. If you feel so compelled, if it's weighing on your heart, come forward. We would love to pray to those ends with you because those of us who are redeemed, we know what God intends to be the elixir of our life. So let's neither forget nor neglect prayer for the salvation of the lost because that is the heartbeat the Christian life, the heartbeat of a church that's on mission. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I find myself so grateful this morning for your love, that you lived, that you died and were resurrected to make a way for us to know the Father. Jesus, I pray that we would be a church on mission, that we would be a people on mission that our heartbeat would be prayer for the salvation of the lost. God, thank you for encouraging us to that end. Thank you for inviting us to participate with the work that you want to do in the world. I pray that in the next years, decades ahead, that we would be a church known because of the way we pray for those who don't yet know you. Just I pray you would move, that we would see that fruit in and around our communities. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.